Well, it was a, uh, a late day in August, a hot summer day. I was 17 years old. I had thrown on my cleats, had my uh, padded football pants on, a cut-off sleeve shirt, and was walking up the hill to my high school football field. Football had become a, a way of life for me as a child. Uh, I had grown up in the shadow of a high school that was known for its athletics and success. It was a large public school. I graduated with 940 other students at a school with almost 4,000 in it. Um, and I was part of a football team that had 150 student athletes on the roster. But as I walked to the field with this ominous click-clack of the steel-studded football cleats, I found the head coach walking the green grass off in the distance. I was one of very few players out that early, uh, and Coach Allen uh, was walking off in the distance, obviously with something on his mind at the time. You could tell he'd been on the field for a while. So as I approached the field, I made my way over to him and asked, Hey, Coach, what are you doing? His response is still seared into my mind this day. He said, I am praying. That's right. At a huge school known for its sports in the midst of a time where teachers and coaches could be harassed for sharing anything faith-driven. The thing I remember most about my head football coach, Tom Allen, is not his desire to win football games or his excitement on the sidelines or his motivational speeches. No, what I remember most about him was his faith and his heart for Christ. And specifically that day, his prayers. He had a team roster in his hand and had been out on the field praying for each student athlete by name. It's great to have people we look up to, right? You know, the, the people that have had influence on your lives, the people that I'm guessing right now are coming to your minds that have affected you in some positive way. Maybe they walked with you through a difficulty or a struggle in life. Maybe it's somebody um, like your boss or your, your grandparent, a teacher, a preacher, a coach, or the likes. When you think about that person, you think of the solid impact they had on your life, and maybe you even recall a certain situation, an event in which you saw that impact being lived out. Maybe for you, that person of influence is still influencing you to this day. Or maybe they've passed away, but their faith um, and the things that they taught you are still um, being driven up in your spirit, even as we speak. Timothy and Paul's relationship was something like this. The impact Paul's life had on the faith of this young guy named Timothy was massive. Paul had taken a young man known for his timid nature, being a little bit of a, a, somebody that's uh, shied away from difficult situations, and he had made him a pillar of truth and leadership in the midst of a church in a city that had dealt with a lot, a lot of brokenness and corruption. Now, I'm sure Timothy could point to some very specific moments that stuck out to him about Paul. Maybe it was the first time they had met when Paul had called him out to be a missionary, um, to come along with him in his journeys, in his missionary journeys. Or maybe it was the moments when Paul had been beaten and bloodied, and because of his bold faith in the gospel, had, had taken, uh, taken some literal physical abuse. Yet, in those moments, he um, looked at Timothy, and Timothy at him, and he said, we've got to keep preaching the word. Whatever the situation, there is little question that Timothy looked up to Paul as a mentor in the faith. Now, 2 Timothy is not just a book in the Bible, right? It was originally a, a very personal letter written to Timothy from Paul. Listen to how the, the letter is opened up um, from, from Paul. It says this, to Timothy, my, my dear son. Now, they weren't father and son by blood. They were father and son by, by their faith in Christ. 
He says, To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The connection there had become a a deep bond. Now, can you imagine this? Uh, Timothy was probably busy at work, maybe taking care of some of the pastoral needs, and maybe even preparing a message for the upcoming Sunday where he would share the truth with the people there at Ephesus in that church. When some sort of mail carrier knocks at the door, uh, Timothy gets up, he goes over, um, and, and he opens the door, and there's this man that has brought forth this, this letter, and, and he says, this is from, from Paul. It's dingy looking. Uh, maybe some used scrap pieces of papyrus uh, paper in that day. It probably, it probably smelled like sweat and feces, uh, because the gels in those days were, were pits, they were dungeon-like, they were nothing like our humane gels today. And the mail carrier says to Timothy, I've got this letter for you. And it's from Paul. Now, this wasn't the first letter, right? We looked at 1 Timothy earlier in the summer. This is the second letter, but there was a three to four year gap between each of these these letters. Timothy had probably heard of the difficulties of Paul, just as Paul had heard of the difficulties Timothy had faced through the kind of the grapevine of people and others that are traveling. But he had not heard directly from this man. There was no phone calls. There were no emails in that day. They hadn't talked to each other directly in three or four years. So can you imagine what Timothy would have thought when he got this letter and he knew this one, this is from Paul. He probably pulled up a seat, sat down, and began to pour over this letter. And there it is. It opens. To Timothy, my dear son. He reads then in, in the verse 7, it says, For the Spirit God gave us, well, it, it doesn't make us timid, but it gives us power and love and self-discipline. Into chapter 2, verse 1, it says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Tears are, are probably welling up in the eyes of the young preacher, recalling the memories and the days that he had spent with Paul, who had seen and been so strong and confident in the faith and the gospel. Then on into chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching. My, my way of life, my purpose, my faith, my patience, my love, and endurance. Yeah, he, he knew, right? He had traveled, they had traveled together for years, and he knew of Paul's consistent strength and faith. But now Timothy is beginning to realize that the letter is getting shorter. He's nearing its end. And he knows, he knows just by how Paul has introduced himself, he knows by what he has heard um, that, that Paul's life is probably coming to a close. Tears may be streaming down at Timothy's face. He's probably on the edge of his seat, thinking, what more? What more can I learn? How can I be a more faithful person, a more faithful leader to the gospel? How can I be a better pastor of these people in Ephesus? How can I make sure that the church succeeds in the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to the people here? So he moves into what is chapter 4 in our page markings of 2 Timothy. If you want to turn over there, you can. It says this starting in verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desire, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. 
But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And discharge all the duties of your ministry. Now my guess is that that Timothy read over this letter over and over and over again, right? It, it wasn't that it was necessarily new to him, that these truths that were being shared, but they, they would have been even a reminder of what Paul had stood for and the ministry that, that he had done and what a good minister of the gospel would strive to do as well. These are things that Timothy um, remembered Paul setting the example of. This was, was not necessarily something new, but it was something to be reminded of and how he was called to glorify Christ and to see that Christ was lifted high. Timothy lived in a tumultuous time, right? Corruption had ran rapid in, it rampant in the city of Ephesus. We've spoken about that a few times, right? There were, there were brothels and prostitutes on street corners. There was a large temple built to these same purposes. Beyond that, Ephesus was the fourth largest city uh, in, in, the, in the world at that time. It sat in perfect location to a couple major rivers that came into the city. Um, it made it a large city of port uh, and commerce. Um, there were a lot of trade that would have come in. And because of that, this brought a vast variety of different faiths and ethnic backgrounds. There would have been divisions of class. There would have been clashes between people of different views and races and the likes. It was one of the most culturally advanced societies of that day, but also one of the most sin-ridden and corrupt cultures. However, many historians say that Ephesus played one of the most uh, important and crucial parts in the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the first century. I like to think that Ephesus and the situation that Timothy um, was in was quite like ours, right? I mean, we too live in a society ridden with sexual corruption and, and sin, right? There's um, sex shops on street corners. Pornography is ready at the fingertips of anybody that has access to the internet. A culture is seen in the media that revolves around these, the look of sex appeal of a man or a woman. Not to mention, America, like Ephesus, is obviously large in size and large in influence, plays one of the biggest roles in our modern era. Then there's the struggle and clash of race that we have seen played out on our televisions and in our country over the last decades, and specifically over the last few months. There's the struggle of people that we watch. But like Ephesus, someday America will go down in history as one nation that has greatly affected the cause of Christ. And while this letter was written specifically to a minister and a preacher, the content of what is being shared should not be like skimmed over by others who are followers of Christ. Right? What Paul challenges Timothy with is this like last will and, and testament per se. And it relates just as powerfully to each and every one of us in our situation right now in this very world. That's what's so powerful about God's word. That he inspired it to be written by mankind and it's alive and active, the scripture tells us. The words penned some 2,000 years ago to a culture that obviously did have differences than our culture today can come to us and have just as much powerful influence on who we are. So as Timothy looks through the letter, as he reads over and over and over again, and as we read it this morning, what is it that God's revealing to us? First, I think it's this, that we're called to communicate truth. Communication is vital in our world, right? As you know, we are one of the most connected societies that has ever walked the face of the earth, um, yet at times we seem to be the most disconnected, right? 
the Associate Press uh, recently did a, uh, a survey and a study on social, the social media platform uh, Twitter, um, and there were two things that they were very interested in. They found this. When it came to um, events, uh, when a person tweeted about an event, um, 37% of the time the event was 100 miles away, and 46% of the time the event was 600 miles away. So over 80% of the time, the events that were being tweeted about were hundreds of miles away from the people that were talking about this. But here's the difference. When it came to people, the more interactions uh, that somebody had with a person, the closer they lived to them. So if somebody was tweeting back and forth with one individual, um, the closer they lived in proximity to one another. It's that idea that we innately understand we can't always control the events of this world, and influence them, but we can have influence on those who live around us and with us in this life. Paul and Timothy both knew the power of their influence on the culture, right? Paul knew it because he had devoted his life to the missionary work, right? He went from town to town to town and sharing truth and having influence on people. If anybody would listen to him, he was going to tell them about who Jesus was and what he could do for them and how he could save them from a life that it was a mess and broken. Paul knew the power of his words because he used them to impact others, and they still impact us today through God's inspired word. Timothy knew this because Paul left him in Ephesus. He said, you need to stay there. The church needs you. They need your influence. They need your constant presence of someone that's going to communicate truth. Listen again to what it says in chapter 4, verses 1 and, in, and into 2. It says this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge, preach the word. Paul has a desire for Timothy to preach the word, right? To communicate truth. But more than that, Timothy has a responsibility as a minister and as a follower of Christ to do this. That's what it means by in the presence of of God, or in the hope of his returning, right? That someday Christ is going to return and he's going to come back. And those who, that have given their life over to him are going to spend eternity with him. And every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess. Someday that's actually going to happen. Now, Timothy is told you need to be the person that is communicating these truths to these people. Preach the word. Now, the term preach was actually a term in that day um, that would have referred to a herald of the king, uh, right? Uh, hark the herald, the angel sings, we sing around Christmas time. A herald was somebody that communicated truth for a king. They would have went out, gotten the attention of the people, and communicated this like law that was passed or something that the, the king had decreed. Timothy was a herald of the king of kings, and he was being called to communicate truth. Now, some of you have heard the quote, uh, of a man referred by the name of St. Francis Assisi, right? Preach the gospel, use words if necessary. The quote has the idea that you can, in your actions, um, powerfully impact people with truth. Rightfully so, how we act and what we do can uh, influence people. And many people also point to this passage as, well, it was written to a preacher. You know, right? It was written to a minister. And I can agree, as I read over this as a minister and as a preacher, it's, it's a challenge to me. However, I believe that the challenge transcends the title of minister or clergy. We are all called to be communicators of truth. While some have been called to large public platforms and called to be teachers and preachers, we are all called to be people that would communicate truth and the hope that we have found in Christ. 
Right? Jesus said it like this in Matthew chapter 12. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Or in Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. Right? We, we cannot hide behind the false idea that it's a, a minister's responsibility, or it's the preacher's responsibility, or it's the missionary's responsibility, because we are all called ambassadors of Christ for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in a society that's plagued with injustice and violence and pain, we get to be the heralds of truth. The people that communicate our faith, not solely by action, but just as much by our words. But second, I think we learned this, that we are to connect with patience. If you want to turn over to Mark chapter 6 um, in your Bibles, you, you're going to find a story of the, the feeding of 5,000 there. You've probably heard the story before, right? Jesus has been traveling around with his disciples. Um, they've been going from town to town, and he's teaching, and he's, he's preaching, and he, he, he's healing people. He's performing miracles. And they cross the Sea of Galilee, they come to the shore, and uh, there immediately people begin to gather around him. They begin to, to hear him, and he begins to teach, and, and they're excited, and, and they're hearing this, and more people begin to come, and before long the crowd has gotten larger and larger and larger. And Jesus is teaching until it's late in the evening, and then suddenly he realizes, man, all these people are hungry, we need to feed them. Well, what do we have to feed them? And the disciples drum up some food. They get five loaves of bread and two fish. Well, there's 5,000 people. That's a little boy's lunch. But what does Jesus do, right? He turns the five loaves and the two fish into a feast for 5,000. Actually says that 12 basketfuls of leftovers were collected. I find it interesting. I think that probably each of the disciples were the ones collecting the leftovers. They probably ate on those provisions for the, the next couple of days. A reminder of what was had taken place. But if you then turn just over a couple more chapters into Mark chapter 8, you find a story of the feeding of 4,000. Now we can see obviously in our Bibles that this is a chapter and a half later, but obviously these markings weren't there when, it, when Mark wrote it. Uh, we don't know the time exactly in between these, but we know it couldn't have been more than a few years. So here they are, similar situation, a lot of people, they come around Jesus, they're hungry, and here's what it says in verse 4. But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? All right. Now I'm thinking, why doesn't Jesus like get out his like staff and start beating these guys, right? I mean, come on. Like you just you know he's done this before. You've seen him feed more than that. And you you don't know if he can do it again. He, he's performed miracles like this before, and they had seen miracle after miracle. But Jesus doesn't call them stupid. He doesn't call them dumb. He doesn't go, you guys, you guys are idiots. I'm going to get some new followers. I'm going to get some new disciples. No, he just performs a miracle, and he continues to consistently have patience with those people that he cared about. I think we're a lot like the disciples. So I guess in a vague way, I just called you all dumb. Uh, but I think, you know what, you've probably done this before, right? Question God's provision. Maybe it was like a struggle that you were going through and you've had a medical issue come up and you got the medical bills in the mail and you were like, whoa, I don't know how I'm going to take care of this. And God provided for it. But then just a, a few months later, a year later, the same thing happens. And what do you do? You begin to question God's provision. 
I think we often have short memories of how God loves us and his faithfulness to us. But God, through Jesus, is connected to us, and he has patience with us. So as Timothy reads the letter, I'm sure he's reminded of the patience of Paul. Paul had demanded some things of Timothy, right? But this was out of love. Paul had walked the roads of ups and downs with Timothy. He had seen Timothy's weakness and consistently reminded him with a patient heart to not neglect his gift. Now he reminds Timothy to do the same. And as he continues the ministry of Christ um, that that they had been called to, he says this in uh, verse 2, it continues on, of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. It says, Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Now Paul's reminding Timothy of these like pastoral duties, right? A pastor cares for the people. Um, he challenges them. He, he, he loves those that have been entrusted to him. And that takes patience, right? I, I like how the message paraphrases it. It says, challenge, warn, and urge your people. Don't ever quit. Just keep it simple. You see, Timothy, like any preacher, would probably experience some really amazing moments of faith. People coming to know the Lord. Yet he had also probably experienced some very difficult moments, some very disappointing moments in his journey. It's like seeing a person come to know Christ, right? You've walked with them, you've journeyed with them, they've given their life over to Christ, you've seen them be baptized, or you got to be a part of that baptism. But two weeks later, you get a call from them, and they're in jail because they got pulled over and were drunk and got a DUI. It happens. That's a true story. But just like Christ forgives that person again, we too should connect with the people that we have influence on, and we should be patient with them. Who is it in your life? I mean, I know you guys have some people that you're thinking of right now. People that have trampled on the grace of Jesus, and you're like, man, why don't they get it? Right? The people that you're like beating your head against the wall, like, why do they not realize how stupid these decisions are? People that are wallowing in the same mess of addiction or drugs or relationships that are bad for them, lifestyle decisions and sin again. Let me tell you this. Whoever that person is, or whoever those people are, Would you continue to share love with them? Would you continue to take the opportunities when they arise to have patience and to care for them? And as Timothy was told, to challenge, warn, and urge them all along with great patience. But third and finally this morning, I think we learned this, that we are to continue with perseverance. NBC airs a special on the triathlon each year. They'll show hundreds of thousands of men who participate in a three-stage race. A full triathlon, also known as an Ironman, consists of a 2.4-mile swim, a 112-mile road bike ride, and then a 26.2-mile run. Who's up for that? I'm like, nah, not happening, right? Now, the grueling event on average can be finished in 12 hours and 27 minutes. NBC's coverage will oftentimes focus on, like, the star athletes and the professionals who can finish the race in even faster times, um, about 10 hours and 25 minutes or so. It's nice to watch these astounding feats of these people that are, like, superhuman. But for me, I enjoy the stories of the people that finish right before the cutoff. They get 17 hours to finish the race. If they don't finish in that 17-hour period, they technically have never finished an Ironman. So they get 17 hours, and why the best can finish and beat that by 7 hours... I like to hear the stories not of the first, but of the last. 
Stories like athletes who have persevered, like Gayla Chambers, um, who, who didn't learn how to swim until she was 58 years old, um, yet she finished her first Ironman at 71 years of age. Then there's a, a man by the name of Matt Milkinson. He won a million dollars, a bet from some buddies that he couldn't finish it. Um, but if he did, they'd give that million dollars to feed hungry um, children in third world countries. Then there's Harriet Anderson. Harriet Anderson is the oldest female competitor to ever have finished an Ironman. She was 76 years old when she finished the Ironman. And then there's Scott Rigsby. I, I like to hear his story. Double amputee, um, veteran that has finished um, multiple Ironmans without the use of his lower, lower limbs. Paul was at the end of a journey. I think Paul's journey, if you would sum up the Apostle Paul with one word, perseverance is the word, right? Paul had been beaten, he had been jailed, he had been stoned, he had been run out of town, he had been shipwrecked and more, but he continued the journey each time. Paul understood that being a follower of Christ was not always easy. It was the promised thing that, that Jesus gave us. I think sometimes we don't realize this, but in John chapter 16 it says, it says this, I have told you these things, this is Jesus here, so that in me you may have peace. In me, in Jesus, you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. Not you might. Not uh, it could happen. No, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Right? It's to say that there are going to be difficult moments. The journey of faith is not always easy. There are going to be deaths. There are going to be persecutions. There are going to be frustrating things that happen in your life. There are going to be ups and there are going to be downs. But Christ walks with us in those. And Timothy would have surely seen this connection as Paul continues on in verse 3 of our passage today. It says, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to miss. But you... Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge or, or fulfill or carry on all the duties of your ministry. Paul is giving Timothy like this game time speech, right? You talk about a coach. He's giving him the game time speech. He's saying, Timothy, it's time. God is ready to use you. Would you just keep moving Forward, or as the famous theologian said, Rocky Balboa, right? It ain't about how hard you can hit, but about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Now get up, right? But in all seriousness, it's crucial that we recognize the world we live in is going to be difficult at times, and it's going to be hard to proclaim truth in a world that is full about political correctness and coexisting. And if you think any differently, then you're a bigot. But this is nothing new to the gospel, right? We face nothing that the other followers of Christ before us haven't faced as well. And the same is true that of them as it was and is for us. We can't give up. We have to be a people that powerfully stand on truth in the midst of brokenness. We have to be a people that won't compromise the word, but will stand on it as the foundation that does restore and redeem the mess of this world. You know, uh, I found this uh, over my weeks of study, and uh, it was a Christian poetry group called Worth Dying For. I think they said it well when it came to being a follower of Christ. 
It says, I'm a part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. I've stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am a disciple of His. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be stilled. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. I'm finished and done with low living, sidewalking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, tame visions, worldly talking, cheap giving, and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, position, promotion, applause, or popularity. I don't have to be rights, first, tops, recognized, praised, regarded, or rewarded. I now live by faith, lean on His presence, walk by patience. I'm uplifted by prayer, and I labor by power. My face is set, my grade is fast, my goal is heaven, my road is narrow, my way is rough. My companions are few, my God is reliable. And my mission is clear. I can't be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of my adversaries, or negotiate at the table of my enemies and ponder at the pool of popularity. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I stayed up, stored up, prayed up, preached up for the cause of Christ. For I, I am a disciple of Jesus. You know that term, disciple, that just simply means follower of Christ. Because just like Timothy, we as followers of Christ have been given a charge, have been given a challenge, and the challenge is simply this, keep moving forward. Keep proclaiming the gospel, keep sharing the truth. And some of you in this this room this morning, you're thinking, you know what, I'm not a follower of Christ. And some of you are even saying, man, if you knew where my life was at right now, if you knew the situation that I was in, if you knew the mess that is my life, you would know that I can't possibly be redeemed from that. I can't possibly be restored from that. But let me tell you this, He can, Jesus can redeem that, and He can mend your brokenness, and He can bring you back whole. The hole that is in your heart will never be filled by the drugs and the alcohol and the sins of this world. Only Christ can fill that hole. You are not too broken. You are not too messed up. God loves you. And God desperately wants you to come to know Him. He sent His Son for you. For some of you in this room, you might be like me. You say, I I grew up in the faith. I've known the Lord for years. And it's just a good reminder that you need to keep trotting on. You need to keep moving forward. But you want to recommit that. You might want to pray at the steps, and pray about a situation or a specific person. You might want to pray with somebody else. I'll be over here by the cross in just a moment. Tom will be in the back of the room. Matt will be over here by the baptistry. My encouragement is whatever decisions of faith you need to take, that you would you take them, that you would take that step and move forward.